we're starting together a meditation retreat and this being the first of the evening talks uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about the background to the field of meditation and spend some time talking to about the general outline of the retreat both in its form in its practice and emphasis some Two and a half thousand years ago, when the Buddha's mind awoke to the reality of life, he gave a talk. In fact, it was his first talk in a place called Sarana. And he went there particularly to speak to five of his, what we might call, spiritual friends. And in this first of his talks, he spoke, if not warned about, how easily the mind slips and moves into patterns of extremism. And he cited two um, examples of this. One the relentless pursuit of um, sensation, pleasure, having, getting, regarding ex existence merely as a, a means to accumulate more and more. And the other extreme, which lends itself to a life-denying attitude, to insularity, to self-withdrawal, if not self-rejection, and all the kind of needless austerities and reactions that can accompany that. And we might say that in looking at the world that we live in, if we ever in the busyness of our life ever have time to stop and look and look again we might well be noticing the degree of extremism on our planet and wherever we turn our heart and our mind and our attention we see these expressions of this extremism politically with all the fear and aggression that accompanies it and socially and also personally personally sometimes expressing itself as 
as was mentioned two and a half thousand years ago, this abuse of existence in which the pursuit of this, that and the other becomes a whole foundation for one's existence, regardless of the cost, emotionally, psychologically, physically, regardless of the cost to other human beings, directly and indirectly, or to creatures and the environment. A way of living which is destructive for others, for the earth, and for oneself. And we see too that this extremism, one has the feeling sometimes with it as one looks and travels on the globe, that it's very predominant in the time and age that we are living in. And one wonders, what is it in the mind? What's going on in people's inner world, let alone the outer world with all its pressures and tensions, that drives people towards extremism? Whether at the individual level it shows itself in this mad materialism and hedonism and all the pain that accompanies it, or to the other kind of extreme in which there are these frequency and more and more emerging of these various cults which arise. And one sometimes wonders, is there the common connection between the two? Some emotional patterns of fear and self-doubt and insecurity which drives people in individually and collectively in one way or in the other way. And it's very easy for us in our self-righteousness and so forth to rather judge, rather heavily and, and harshly extremists, whatever category we may be conceiving of them. Perhaps when we do judge heavily and harshly, perhaps it's because we haven't given ourselves time and, and the necessary time for some reflection and sensitivities of mind to see, well, what's some of the psychological factors which are motivating here, which drive people one way or the other way. And of course, with that, those people who wish to walk the middle way, who wish to stay and, and find out, in fact, what the middle ground is, Quite frequently, and I'm talking of ordinary women and men living their lives like ourselves and from day to day, often I feel, feel quite disassociated and alienated from this polarization that takes place between the warring factions of extremes with all the fears and suspicions that go with it. And this message of the middle way and the middle ground, just as important as it was two and a half thousand years ago, is certainly equally as important today. One might sometimes think perhaps even more so. And what happens when we feel alienated and 
from these warring uh, uh, factions and all that takes place is I feel frequently a sense of um, um, alienation and powerlessness and that feeling that arises very understandably and manifests inside of ourselves as a thought, well, what can one do? What can one do about this hatred between people, this aggression, this fear, this mistrust, this rejection, this clinging to self-righteous views and opinions, etc., etc., etc.? So if one's looking at the, the, the spectrum of uh, humanity and one is trying to find oneself in and through all of this, it certainly requires for that to take place a real getting in touch with oneself. Because not only do we have to find ourselves, I would say, in life as we are and explore actually what that means, but we've also got to find ourselves in relationship to the totality of life and our relationship to people and groups and all that's implied in that. And so the purpose, a purpose, let us say, of a meditation retreat, and particularly an insight meditation retreat is in a small way given our um, failings and uh, inadequacies is a small way in a small way a small contribution to finding out what this middle ground or middle way is what that means for you and I in our personal life what that means for us socially internationally And for, th- and for that middle way to be there for us in life, it's rather essential that we are grounded. When the mind is ungrounded and, and doesn't know what that is, we are very uh, susceptible, I would say, through the forces of social reality to push us one way, and support and justify and rationalize this and push us the other way and do the, to do the same. But in being grounded, it gives each one of us an opportunity in life to see and look for ourselves. And, and, and a major aspect, I would say, of this middle way in being grounded is we can take responsibility for life. That the old mind which says they are responsible, they are like that, they are like that, which is a direct avoidance for us and the shelving and disassociating ourselves from responsibility, we take the responsibility back and, and say, we are responsible for this world. And there's the p- empowerment and the capacity for us to act from it. That is called middle ground. In coming 
into a, a meditation retreat and as you, as you know then, and there are certainly enough um, visible reminders, let alone anything else, that uh, the inspiration for the meditation methods and practices and the general form and outline comes out of the uh, Buddhist tradition. We are not concerned here with the uh, promoting of um, Buddhism and the Buddhist tradition, although there is a, a genuine acknowledgement for its benefits that it's given a considerable number of people. We're much more concerned here with the establishing of clarity. That comes first, it comes last, and it comes in the middle. And everything else is truly second place to clarity. In, in that and in any kind of situation, and particularly for those of you who um, haven't been here to the centre before, the centre was, um, if I remember rightly, established about ten years ago, and primarily by a number of women and men, small number, coming back from the East, having practised there, have gained a benefit, considerable benefit from the practices, and wishing to share and offer those practices to other people. And so what we have seen here over the last decade is a tremendous number of people who have come here to practice and come quite regularly and knowing, I would say, and knowing very well with regard to this that there's a very generous atmosphere here, very um, open and uh, uh, warm atmosphere. And though one may find it hard to appreciate when one's knees are burning and uh, the shoulders are tensing up and uh, um, one hasn't got a pork chop with the meal and things like that. Never, nevertheless, there is still a great, <laughs> still a great deal of uh, warmth and uh, receptivity within the situation here. And because of the great number of women and men that have come here in, over the years to practice, it's established a, a, a certain kind of atmosphere, perhaps in this room particularly. And in the spirit of that, for those who are particularly new, there often is, as with many things in life, sometimes some fear, some apprehension, of coming into a situation which is unfamiliar. And one has come away from a, a familiar situation, work or unemployment or living with somebody <laughs> or living alone or what, whatever uh, it may be. And in coming into here, here in sometimes places of fear are touched in, inside of oneself or what would it be like or to meditate or all day I've got to be in silence in, and uh, how will I be able to handle this? And that kind of understandable apprehension can be there. And in a way, right from the very um, beginning, rather than waiting to see how easy or difficult it actually 
becomes right from the very beginning. If that's what we're experiencing this evening, right here and now, then our practice is being in touch with that feeling. That's our responsibility. That's our awareness. That's actually our practice. This familiar feeling. And it may seem for you and for I on the larger level of things, one small feeling of fear or apprehension, um, not very, very important in the larger scheme of things. But look how much fear there is in the world. Look what it does to this world. And so when human beings recognize, when you and I recognize the movement of such um, inner phenomena of, of fear, and rather than just believe in it and identify with it and uphold it and so forth, we actually say, right, this is what's happening right now. Whatever conclusions and thoughts which are emerging out of this particular fear, they're just coming out of the fear. And fear restricts us. Fear inhibits opening. Fear blocks us from action. I can't see anything useful in it at all. Anything useful in it. And then we may rationalize it and say, oh, well, you've got to have f- f- fear. If you didn't have, didn't have fear, you'd uh, do all sorts of mindless and stupid things things. Well, I don't think one needs fear to stop oneself doing mindless and stupid things. Just need a little bit of common sense. And, and just where it arises, in the time that it arises, just seeing this phenomena. Because there is much too much of it on our planet. In coming here and in coming into a meditation retreat and, the, and finding, a, finding out about uh, oneself and the practice and the rhythm and the flow of the practice, basically we, shall we say, divide the day, if the day can be divided, um, up into three areas. And each area, each aspect of the day truly gives real support to the other. And they're not in any way inseparable. One, of course, is the uh, formal meditation practice itself. And the formal meditation practice, which uh, in initial days constitutes um, sitting and walking meditation, is an opportunity for us to really simplify things. Now, sometimes in our life and also in our world view, we make things and thought, you know, has this remarkable capacity to make things hellishly complex when they're very simple. 
Now, in order to succeed in, in having a hellishly complex situation, basically one's got to think about it a lot. <laughs> and we can succeed, you know, in like having a ball of string and we tie it round our waist, then we tie ourselves all up in it. And then we say, well, why am I in such a knot? <laughs> and that often seems to be the primary purpose for thinking. <laughs> so meditation is basically, is basically saying, um, I'm familiar with the excesses of thought, um, what would it be like to um, reduce the degree and intensity of thinking and to put the emphasis on being? And then thought comes in because it doesn't know what else to do. <laughs> and it starts wondering, hmm, that's an interesting idea. I remember reading in that book and before one knows it, you know, thought wants to know what being is and all that emerges out of it. So meditation in the way of the practice here is putting much, much less on the thinking world and more emphasis on being present, being present in life. And so we find ourselves, meditatively speaking, frequently, in a way, making the quiet shift from the thought realm and the ideational realm to one of bare actuality. In that, any methods and techniques and posture and general advices which we use are, at their very best, a small support towards being more in touch with ourselves and less caught up in ideation. And so with our sitting and with our uh, walking and with eating and standing and queuing and engaging in the work period and all the things that um, make up the day, in a very real way, it is our life, and in a very real way, it represents our life. So sometimes when coming into a situation, some people say, well, the real world is out there somewhere, and, uh, and one comes in, and this is all rather um, unreal. And very easily the mind comes in, as we do so frequently in life, thought arises, we compare, we judge, we draw conclusions, and we forget this is as, as authentic and as valid and as real a human experience as anything that goes on in the subway of New York City. And our, and our practice is being clearly with what actually is again and again from moment to moment till our heart and our mind understand what it means to be with what is.
and out of that all love emerges. Now in our um, meditations and in our practices the sitting meditation is in description, like most things in life, very uh, simple and in uh, practice very challenging. And the sitting meditation is one sitting in which the posture is reasonably straight and upright. We're being in the present, which is the middle ground between past and future, and being in the present and establishing ourselves the tool which we use in the initial two or three days is the work with the breathing. Simple fullness of care and attention to each in-breath and each out-breath and practicing in a wholehearted way as though one's life depends on it, which it does. We don't depend so much on thoughts for our life, but certainly breathing is an indispensable element for our uh, living experience and if we can get more in touch with organic life and go more deeply when our thoughts emerge which have a, an important and appropriate place in life there'll be much more a clear representation of actuality rather than full of subjectivity identification charge, investment, clinging, possessiveness, or whatever. The thoughts will be saying something much and stating things more clearly and appropriately for us. But for that to be occurring in life, inner depth is indispensable. One can't have it without depth. So in our meditation, we employ or we work with the breathing initially as a primary object, in giving that fullness of care and attention to the whole breathing experience from the very moment it enters through the nose, goes down into the lungs, we feel the air element, the very life of the body responding to the inflow and to the outflow of breath. Doing it regularly, again and again, right in the here and now situation. And of course during the days, Susan and I will be um, speaking much more and there'll be a certain expansion of the practice of the methods and techniques in fact as the days of the retreat get underway for us. In the walking practice, the walking medi meditation, same simple principle in which the uh, here now is emphasized and it's just the walking is done individually and it's slow mindful walking and one of the things which I had um, suggested to the board and referred uh, uh, about it today is that it might be useful to have a uh, for those who are interested a group walking area so in the work period tomorrow, I'm going to get together with uh, one or two of the staff, and hopefully some of you, to establish outside, um, just on the edge of the uh, woods there, um, a circular walking area. And 
Sometimes people find it quite useful and beneficial to have the continuity of practice and for some, just as we do with a group sitting, sometimes as we used to do in the monastery in Thailand, we would have group walking meditation and it's just simple mindful slow walking of experiencing the feet making contact with the earth and it can either be done here individually indoors or outdoors um, or some may care to do group uh, walking practice um, in, in a circle with the emphasis on, on the here and now situation. And in the, in the sitting and in the walking practice, important I- here to bear in mind that both have equal value. And though one may see a proliferation of um, Buddha images and uh, the statues sitting cross-legged and, and so, so forth, um, it's important to bear in mind that these are statues. They're unlikely to get up and walk. And if one does, one should look a little bit more carefully on one's mind. <laughs> if they do, tell me, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> and with the walking practice and the walking um, meditation, as I say, it has equal value. And, and really giving in the 45-minute walking periods that fullness of care and attention regarding it as equally an important spiritual discipline for grounding oneself in life. And so much of the flow of the day moves between the sitting and the walking. So one large part of the day, shall we say, is the formal meditation. Then there are other aspects of the day, this including small group um, meetings, uh, discussions, and also, as the days go by, uh, one-to-one meetings. And the one-to-one meetings, which are usually um, uh, referred to as um, an interview, um, I prefer to um, put a hyphen there, an interview. Two people, uh, as clearly as possible, looking at something together. So sometimes, uh, maybe a person... Um, need some further uh, explanation, so we say, with regard to the practice, or maybe something is coming up in some way, and the two people are there looking at it together. It's an interview with regard to something. And also the small group um, meetings, which among the many usefulnesses is that human beings take a certain comfort. It's a peculiar idiosyncrasy of ours, that we take a certain comfort that if someone else is experiencing you know, some wretched pain in their knees and <laughs> in the, in the, you know, awful back aches and so forth, if you know that others are doing it, it makes you feel better. It's, uh, <laughs> so these small group meetings, whatever other use they may have, um, um, do offer an opportunity for some real comfort in <laughs> And the other aspect and area of the, of the day um, are the uh, evening talks, which uh, I, I um, regard as uh, um, important and have great um, va- value. 
otherwise I wouldn't speak, would I, obviously. And in that, it requires, it, there's a, a certain kind of communication which takes uh, place there. One is that for listening to, for listening to another, um, it needs quite some degree of energy and total attention. And in that, it's rather important, I feel, that when listening to the evening talk, that one doesn't, even if one is feeling um, very tired, lie down in the horizontal posture with a view to listening. Because quite some, um, quite on a number of occasions, I found myself um, in competition with a snorer. <laughs> and it um, doesn't make it easy communicating about awakening and things like that. <laughs> So what I would suggest with regard to that, if you are feeling somewhat exhausted, if not battered by your mind and body th through the day, then in the period just before the sitting to um, have a, a rest or to go out for a, a walk so that there is enough um, energy in order to survive sitting and listening for about the 45-minute period to either Susan or I, or simply if one is feeling 7 o'clock in the evening quite tired out, uh, then um, miss the talk. Simple. Just, just go and um, leave this pillow and develop a relationship with the pillow upstairs. <laughs> and just please don't feel pressurized to um, attend the talks. It must, just as I come um, voluntarily to, uh, and Susan to give the talks, please feel um, free. But once you are here, even if the, m the most um, banal things are being um, <laughs> ta talked about, p um, please do try to uh, um, hang in for the whole of the uh, evening, <laughs> evening talk. Because sometimes one or two people, especially when I've crossed the line, which I do, I must confess, um, and, and say, say something which is a bit... Um, disturbing or get somebody up tight. I do notice someone gets up and walks out, which is a very important freedom to have. You know, the whole hall's eyes um, go <laughs> following that, that person, you see. So, so um, out of compassion for the speaker and listeners. <laughs> so the, the days, the meditations, the meetings with you, and the evening talks. And with that, just on the evening talks, Basically, it's a simple principle. Something useful uh, is said by either of us during these days. Of course, we're glad, we're uh, delighted. And if it isn't very useful or it's um, outrageous or whatever, then please uh, let it go. Let it go out, out the window. Nothing missed. And if something needs clarification in some way or other, then please come and find us and we'll um, try to explain further or if not just um, try and defend what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and other aspects and areas of the uh, practice and the um, rhythm and flow of it that from uh, this evening the silence begins and the silence is a very, very wondrous and important element, very, very wondrous.
And may it be for us during the days too that the, the silence, the silence of the day and the silence of the evening and the silence of the night hours can touch us. It communicates as much as anything else, perhaps even more so in a, in a mysterious way and has in our receptivity a potential for a transforming influence on one's living. So as has been done traditionally and as in all the spiritual and genuinely contemplative traditions, silence has belonged to the field of it. And thus, being that we are a part of that in this present generation of women and men committed to seeing into life and the sensitivities of life maintain a tradition of silence. And in that there's the silence of uh, speech, except for the times that we meet with you, and a certain quietitude of the whole body as we move through the day. And all of this in a very, very real, clear and direct way gives real support to each, to each other. And one develops a deep love and affection for, for silence and the intimacies that it brings for all of us. <coughs> tomorrow, finally now, tomorrow morning we begin the day at um, 5.30 and the first 45-minute period is uh, an exercise period. There's a wake-up bell at 5.30 and if some uh, one of you who have been here um, regularly would care to ring the bell, please, in the morning time. And Jenny, one of the staff, as she has done previously in other retreats, has once again kindly offered to give some um, yoga in instruction, which is such a useful and beneficial way to begin the day. And if anyone wishes to participate in uh, a group a yoga session in the morning, then please... Um, and be here, uh, whatever, about 20 to, to after you wake up, 20 to 6, for uh, some yoga instruction and application, which will either be in here in the meditation hall or in the walking hall. And others can do any form of exercise which you uh, feel useful and uh, appropriate. And then at 6.15 is the first group sitting of the day together. And... As has been, I've been doing now for a, a number of um, uh, years, I play a piece of mu um, music, or rather the tape recorder play, plays it. If I was playing, you'd all be going home in the morning. <laughs> and um, this uh, piece of music varies from classical and traditional, north, south, east and west, and is part of the meditation practice, in this case of Total listening, full care and attention to the notes, to the sound, to the spaces between the sound. And um, Bill here very kindly, during these days for us, looks after the sound system. And then when the music finishes, then after 15 to 20 minutes, then we go back to the breathing and just being quietly in touch with the breathing as it comes and as it goes. Then tomorrow morning one of us will give a talk about 
the practice, about working with the breathing and the walking meditation, and just give more um, meditation instruction for about half an hour period. At the end of the first sitting of the morning, which is at uh, 7 o'clock, just four or five minutes before the end, we just give a, a few general instructions and guidelines with regard to the day. And if, because sometimes people are quite exhausted, um, sleep in a little, but if you can just lend an ear, perhaps just come in at the back of the room at five to seven, as it were, and just lend an ear on the um, instructions, it will save us having to uh, repeat them later on. And the days also, as I mentioned, include evening talks, um, question-answer periods every three days, and there's just the settling in and getting into the rhythm and flow of the practice. And finally, finally, remembering that practice in life is never and can never possibly be just for oneself. It's not personally possible that our practice and the way that you and I are in life, the way that we live, the, the way that we see, the way that we express ourselves, has its impact and influence in this world. And understanding this relationship between ourselves and the world hopefully gives us extra encouragement and extra um, inspiration to engage in the practice and all the integrity which accompanies it of men and women working together to come to fulfillment as a human being and to make that a certain priority for life, for the welfare and benefit of oneself, for the welfare and benefit of our planet. And that's the middle ground. That is the middle, the middle way. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.